Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Wednesday, February 20th, 2019, live from the Etail West Trade Show here in relatively sunny Palm Desert. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and unfortunately, due to travel issues, Scott couldn't be here for this show, so we'll have to try to soldier on without him. As long-time listeners will know, two of the most common questions we get on the Jason and Scott show are what are the hottest trends in consumer retail companies and what's going on with retail, social, and e-commerce in China. So we're really excited to have on the show one of only a handful of people that can answer both of those questions. Please welcome to this week's show, Robin Lee. Robin's a principal at GGV Capital. Welcome to the show, Robin. Thank you so much for having, having me. We are thrilled to have you. Robin, uh, we, uh, we always like to start the show by uh, learning a little bit about the background of our guests. Can uh, you tell us a little bit about how you came to the v- VC world? Yeah, sure. So before I was in venture, I was actually an educator. So I spent three years in Teach for America, teaching special education at middle school, pretty much all subjects. Then I went on to go into business school. I really didn't have 100% clear vision of what I wanted to do. But I did a lot of volunteer work in the local Chicago community, especially at Startup Accelerators and um, Teach for America's Entrepreneur Program, which is where I really learned a lot more around entrepreneurship, tech, and startups. And so when I was in business school, I took a chance and applied to this job opportunity to intern at Ximing, which turned out to be a top VC fund in China. And I actually never lived in China. I was born in Hong Kong, but I was like, hey, this is awesome, and uh, I'm very curious to learn. So I ended up applying and they accepted me and that's where I met Hans Tung, managing partner now at GGV Capital. Little did I know he was actually on the Forbes Midas list as one of the top VCs in the entire world. And so after meeting Hans, my network really grew. He's an amazing mentor. I worked briefly at Flex as a venture capitalist, but then after I finished business school, I returned to GGV Capital and I've been here since ever since. It's been almost five years. That's awesome. So you basically followed like Jack Ma's career trajectory, sort of starting as a teacher and then going on to dominate e-commerce. He's definitely my role model. <laughs> I think he's a lot of our role models. <laughs> um, so that is awesome. And I love the Chicago connection. I am also a Chicagoan. And uh, until recently, I, I worked right next to 1871 every day. So oh, well, fun. and that is where I volunteered. Yeah, perfect. Um, so you probably walk by my office at Razorfish all the time uh, back in the day. Uh So let's dig into GGV just a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about the firm? Of course. Um, GGV Capital is a $6.2 billion global venture capital firm, and we invest in entrepreneurs globally uh, in the U.S., in Asia, and other emerging economies. And so we've actually been doing this for the past 18 years. We have offices across Silicon Valley, which is Menlo Park and San Francisco. We have Beijing, Shanghai, most recently Singapore, and I am based in New York. So as a team, we live by a few simple rules, create impact, be local, and then global. So in terms of stages, we're actually stage agnostic. And so we can do anything from investing in a seed stage company to very late stage pre-IPO company. And so that means we can write checks as small as 100K to even $50 million. Um, I would say that we are very sector specific. We focus on four main verticals, consumer internet and urban tech, which is what I cover, 
enterprise SaaS and deep tech. And so we, as venture capitalists, we are believers behind the believers. <laughs> we look for very globally minded entrepreneurs and founders that are changing the world that we live in. That's awesome. And you were smart enough to pick the best of the sectors that GGV covers too. So, And it's very exciting and very relatable. Uh, I like it. Um, and uh, I, I know it's a famous list, so I already know the answer to the question I'm going to ask, but can you share a couple of the companies that you guys either led or have uh, uh, been involved with? Yeah, of course. And so, I mean, given that we are at ETL West, I'm going to focus on some of our e-commerce portfolio. We love investing in the sector and the e-commerce ecosystem. And so we're actually early investors in Alibaba back in 2003, which really helped us shape our global commerce strategy. Uh, in the U.S., we back a lot of companies in marketplaces such as Wish, House, Poshmark, OfferUp, to even direct-to-consumer brands like Peloton, Lively, Winky Lux, Function of Beauty, and even e-tailers like Box Wholesale and Yami Buy. And so um, we invest a lot in e-commerce enablers. And so you could think of these as um, payment solutions such as Square and Affirm to uh, big commerce who power a lot of the merchant shops. Uh, that is totally awesome, and uh, congratulations on all that success. Uh, I'm going to assume there were some that weren't as successful that we didn't mention <laughs> uh, to balance that out. But that's an amazing portfolio. Thank you. And we're gonna we're gonna we try. Yeah, and I hope we will get a chance to dive into a few of those. Um, but uh, you are here at Etel West uh, to talk about a pan uh, to participate in a panel about what's hot in. Uh, internet and retail. Um, so I want to steal all the thunder from that panel. Um, what what are some of the hot things that you're you're seeing and excited about? So in terms of what we're excited about, we, we look a lot into these e-commerce enablers and ecosystem partners. And so um, for us, we've con we've continued to back brands and, and marketplaces and whatnot, but we, we do see that there's been an emerging global trend. And so whether it's next-gen retail across the world or enabling global commerce solutions, whether on the payment side or actually on the cross-border shipping logistics side, that's something that we're diving deep into. And it's, it's interesting because uh, you, you guys have a, a, a big international footprint and obviously a lot of uh, successful North American brands as well. Um, and uh, sort of one of the frequent conversations we have here is, like, gosh, there are things that seem like they're wildly successful, for, like particularly in China, like social commerce or chat commerce or different things um, that we like maybe haven't like gotten as quick adoption in the U.S. Uh, when you take a global investment strategy, I could imagine that's even harder because you're investing in a, a company that may excel in one market and, and uh, have a more difficult time getting traction in, in some other market. Yeah, that's right. Um, but we actually look to both markets for a lot of inspiration. I mean, you know, before China looked to U.S. and copied a lot of the models there, right? But um, now the U.S. looks to China. And so we actually take a lot of lessons learned um, and help each both sides scale. We also see this happen a lot in emerging markets, which actually look very similar to China. And so we recently made some investments in Latin America as well as Southeast Asia. Nice. Um, I I sometimes have an hypo uh, hypothesis that there are uh, experiences and consumer um, value props that get launched in China sooner um, that uh, eventually get traction in the U.S. So it's like, and sometimes sometimes I feel like you can use China as a little bit of a time machine sometimes to predict things that may 
may come to pass here. Have you, like, are you able to do that at all? Or? Yeah, for sure. And so we, we see a lot of trends in China, um, particularly because China has leapfrogged in many different industries. And so you could say, you know, China has leapfrogged in the mobile side. They have leapfrogged in the payment side. And so that's really exciting uh, for us to take a, a lot of look into. And um, next generation retail from offline to online is a, is a very big trend in China that we take a lot of inspiration from. Yeah, for sure. And it, uh, like a, a, a theme that comes up a lot for me, uh, obviously, there's great mobile payment solutions in China. And I feel like that's a foundational thing that enables a bunch of great customer experiences there. Um, and people go, oh, maybe American consumers don't want to do uh, social commerce or something like that. And my premise is that they probably do. We just don't have the great universal digital wallets to enable those transactions like we uh, like they do in China. And so I, in my mind, I, we may see more of those, those Asian experiences come here once uh, some of the enabling foundational things like, like mobile payments are in place. Yeah, I actually, you know, Instagram has doing a lot of these interesting selling features and it ties a lot into social commerce and the lessons that we see uh, in China. And so this has been a like huge area and opportunity for us. And we started investing in this in this a couple years back. Uh, we made an investment called Little Red Book or Red for short. It was founded in late 2013, now has grown to about 160 million users in China and is the number one lifestyle sharing community in China. And if you want to think about Red, it's kind of like an Instagram meets Pinterest meets Amazon <laughs> of China. And, you know, the, the users there are, are on the platform are young, predominantly female, urban and very trendy. And so they network with each other through a lot of this content on the platform. And so we see this as a trendsetter in China, right? And they shape a lot of the next generation consumption behaviors and what we call like social commerce. And so what they do is they buy something, whether it's in China or overseas, come back, post about it um, to kind of, you know, at first show off to your friends, but also collect items, right? And see what's trending in each category. And so if I'm making a career trip next week, I want to know what's the best selling beauty products or what are the top snacks in Japan that I should bring home. And so they actually have about 100,000 user-generated content posts per day, amassing billions of impressions. And so given that they know what's trending at any given time, they actually can source very well and build a marketplace. And this is exactly what they've done. So they've now have this incredible e-commerce business and a marketplace on their platform. And to kind of tie it back to the U.S., a few months ago, they even started helping brands like KKW, Kim Kardashian's beauty brand, launch in China. And so we definitely see that, you know, Instagram is definitely very global and are starting to take a lot of lessons to enable social commerce to work. And I'm very excited to see what what, what comes. Yeah, for sure. In I mean, so going back to our earlier point, could you see that becoming uh, popular in the U.S. as well? Like, uh, like obviously, you you mentioned the Instagram's new shopping features. Um, I feel like a lot of their predecessors have tried shopping features and didn't get good adoption. And so you could go, oh, you know, poo-poo that. But you, again, to your, your point, you go to China and like, man, the level of engagement with these social platforms and WeChat and Picadoo and in uh, Red and all these platforms, you go. Man, if, if so many consumers are doing that there, it's hard to imagine that they don't want to do that here as well. 
Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, if, if anyone can make it work, it's probably going to be Instagram. I think it's a little too late for, for Pinterest to make that type of pivot. But, um, but I, yeah, I definitely think that, especially with logistics getting easier, or payments becoming faster and, and more convenient for consumers, it's, it, it's definitely possible. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of the companies in your portfolio are direct-to-consumer brands. Um, and we've been spending a ton of time talking about sort of the evolution of the market. And it's interesting. I frequently point out uh, to my like large established retail clients that there, there really only has been one new wholesaler launched in the last 10 years. And uh, nobody can name them, by the way. Uh, they're, they're your company. It's boxed. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, like all the new companies aren't traditional wholesale retailers. They're direct-to-consumer brands yeah. that make their own stuff. Uh, the challenge has been... It seems like they all get to some threshold level of sales and then, like, seemingly plateau. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, once you hit that plateau, like, we see them sell themselves to bigger established brands or making make huge investments in customer acquisition that maybe seem crazy and unsustainable. And I'm thinking of, like, Jet or uh, Blue Apron or some of those those bad examples. Um, <laughs> or <laughs> examples. Uh, it worked out pretty well for Jet. Uh or uh, they start to look at other channels to grow, like partnering with traditional wholesale retailers or opening their own stores or those kinds of things. Is, is that just growing pains of the D2C market? And are you confident that these D2C companies are, are going to be able to like, hit the kind of scales that give you a good return on investment? Or is that a challenge in that space? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, this is a hot topic among all VCs. The DTC landscape is is changing faster than ever, and I think that what what we've seen is that there's just been an amazing, increasing amount of new players launching pretty much every day, and with these innovative strategies that can reach customers that have never been been able to be done before, right? And and in the U.S. and this has really been powered by Facebook and Instagram, who've made it possible. And in in China, like you said, it's really WeChat and WeChat Mini programs, right? Um, just to give some perspective, we've, we've now seen 820,000 merchants on Shopify alone um, that sell pretty much D2C, and most of which aren't even venture-backed but have built huge businesses. Amazon has 136 private labels, brands, and Amazon's pretty much direct-to-consumer, and these are what t- taking over what traditional department stores and grocers have done. 383 exclusive brands just on the Amazon platform alone. And I think that, um, you know, if VCs want to play in the space, I think we, we, we have to take a look at, hey, it's been so easy to start these brands. What is it that can really distinguish them from the other? Is it a very unique supply chain? We look for a founder that has an incredible story, ambition, and, and something that can give them a, a very different competitive edge and definitely somebody who wants to go global. Because I think today, if you only create a brand just for a certain group of audience, you're actually messing out on billions of other smartphone users around the world. And we're very bullish on cross-border e-commerce. Yeah, and that, that feels like another interesting evolution to me is like, if you go back in time, traditionally, brick-and-mortar retail has not expanded geographically very well. Like, there's a few examples, but like, you look at some of the most successful retailers in the world, and they kill it in their home market, and they really struggle to get global adoption in other markets and this this new d2c model like you know seems like it thrives uh globally and uh, jumps borders much much 
easier and with lower risk, frankly. Yeah. Without all those costs. Um, I, I'm a sort of a big believer in the D2C market, too. I, I talk a lot about how, like, I feel like the future is, like, you know, one or more big aggregator marketplaces in every market, and then every other retailer will essentially be D2C. And the, all those retailers in the middle that are mainly trying to sell other people's stuff are the ones that are most at risk. Um, and what's interesting is people go, wait a minute, so you think Walmart and Target are going away because they're wholesalers? And what's interesting is they're, they're becoming D2C companies too. And you, you look at Target and you go, man, they've launched five new brands, like things like Cat and Jack, that are selling $2 billion oh, a yeah. year. In some ways, those are the most successful new consumer brands that have been launched in the marketplace. I mean, Walmart and Target have always had private label, right? Yeah. And um, it's only been kind of resurfaced lately. Yeah. And uh, repackaged in a different way. Yeah. And I think I think the difference is now they're treating it like a brand instead of a, a, a cheaper value proposition to a national thing. They're putting marketing behind it. And so to me, the a hugely interesting trend is like Kroger has this wildly successful private label brand called Simple Truth. They're selling Simple Truth on, on Tmall in China. Like Kroger mm-hmm. isn't a retailer in China. They're a brand. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that that's a, a, an interesting trend that you guys are sort of on the, the right side of at the moment. Um, Scott would be very angry at me if I didn't ask about uh, on-demand services. Uh, he, as you may know, he he's uh, started up another one of those as we speak. So, uh, so he's obviously uh, bullish. But is that uh, like, do you see a good future for the on-demand type services as well? Oh yeah, this is um, a segment that we love to invest in, especially because it's a crossover between both e-commerce and urban tech. And so, you know, we we actually started to see this take off in the U.S. before China. But what China has done is, and other emerging markets is, is that it's taken off because it's driven off by, driven by micro mobility. And so, when you look at on demand services in the U.S., you can always remember all the different silos that is touched, like Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats, really just go after food. And then you have Instacart going after grocery, and you have Postmates going on these various goods and and then you have some very select on-demand for massages or whatnot. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the issue or kind of the challenges that this can provide is that you have to acquire users again and again. And it's, it gets really expensive. And maintaining even operational fleets on your own is something that requires a lot of capital. And it's very, it's very intensive and even dilutional for, dilutive. For founders, and so what we've seen in China emerge are these mega platforms or so-called super apps. So, for example, Meituan, it, it's a rising super app in China. It's kind of like an Amazon for services. And so you have restaurant reviews, you have delivery, local services, bookings, uh, movie tickets, groceries. Even you can even book travel and, and vacations on there, and and let alone ride hailing and, and bike sharing. And so it's pretty much everything in one. And they leverage the micro-mobility solutions that they have to power all the deliveries in every category that you can find. And, you know, actually last year they IPO'd and it's now a $40 billion market cap company. And so we actually take this lesson from China. We don't think that it's exactly representative of what could happen in the U.S., but we see it in happening in emerging markets like Southeast Asia, in, in Latin America, particularly Brazil and Mexico and whatnot. And so... Um, even the new emerging markets are improving upon that model, which is so exciting. And they're adding like payment solutions on top of it. 
Um, and so we are very bullish on on-demand. Very cool. And then the, the other one that uh, has a lot of buzz lately is that last mile um, and like new innovative solutions for retailers and brands to do the delivery. Is that um, a space that you think also has legs or is that played out? Like what? Yeah, I, I think it's still very much TBD on, on do you does a retailer outsource it, right? Or do you do it in-house? I think Walmart has tried to do it in-house where they, they make their own employees, kind of take something home along the way, but obviously how scalable could that be? But, you know, you know, as GGV, we've, we've invested in a lot of these last mile solutions. And so you, you know, like DD in China, Hello Bike, which is number one bike sharing in China, who pivoted from, from just having you know, on your own delivering, I mean, on your own kind of using the service as a, as a bike sharing, but actually leveraging it to become the delivery and that becoming your vehicle, right? Um, you, we, we have Grab in Southeast Asia. We have Lime in the U.S. for scooter sharing, bike sharing, and even Yellow, who now recently merged with Grin to become Grow in Latin America. Yeah, it. Uh, I mean, obviously the direct... To consu- the home delivery gets like a lot of the buzz, and that's what people think about in Last Mile. You early on, you alluded to the sort of O to O experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot of work in grocery space, and I I really feel like pickup is going to be the high volume last last mile there. And you you look at you know things like uh, I think they just changed their name, but what used to be Alibaba Hema, now I think it's. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blue Hippo, maybe? Is that... Uh, oh, um, that's just the uh, English translation. For, yeah, yeah, I know. But uh, I've, like, they're try- they, it feels like they've officially shifted to the English. Like, I think mm-hmm. they're putting Hippo on the signs yeah, in China. Yeah, I've seen them uh, recently at NRF. Yeah, yeah. In the big show. Yeah, which is interesting that they're exhibiting at U.S. trade shows. Uh, but I think the U.S. retailers are having a lot of success with that, too. Like Walmart with online grocery pickup. And, yeah. and the, it's interesting. There, it feels like there's even a bunch of new startups in the last mile space that are focusing on helping retailers with that, that pickup experience as yeah. well. Um, so that's going to be interesting. Uh, one we get asked about a lot, uh, is voice commerce. What, uh, is that, uh, like a fad or do you think voice commerce is a, a big opportunity? I, I think it's still a little bit too early to tell. I mean, you have these huge numbers around 86 million units shipped worldwide last year and, and 60 million households around the world have these devices. But you're asking, like, literally consumer consumption behavior to change. And, like, how do you actually educate a customer to do that? And having having even enough accounts and, and payment solutions and stuff like that enabled, it, I think it's still a, a few years away at least. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think there are categories where it could really work, but uh, um, I'm not sure people are going to order things with a lot of complicated attributes in brand-specific language for the first time via voice commerce. And like, people are still price sensitive, right? Oh, yeah. Everybody wants a good deal. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's always at the top of the decision tree, no matter what else happens. Is price uh, always always is a big factor. Um, so uh, we've talked a little bit about some of the, the successes and unique companies in China, but like, are there any big macro trends that that you're seeing in China that that listeners should know about? Yeah, I think you know we we talked a lot about um, the continuity of social commerce, right? Um, the influencer live streaming is is a huge industry and boosting a lot of e-commerce growth in China, and so that will actually you know lead to 
maybe $4 billion in revenue this year and just with influencers live streaming to almost like 450 million viewers, which is a lot. And, and so I think that that's really exciting to watch. You still haven't seen that take off here yet. Um, new search engines are in, in, in China. And so instead of like the Google and the Baidu uh, model, but people are actually now searching directly on these super apps and WeChat mini programs. And so instead of starting off from just figuring out what you want, you're actually inside a platform that you're messaging or you're transacting already, transacting already and spending a lot of your time. Uh, lastly, I think, you know, Chinese platforms are starting to go global. We just talked about Alibaba, right? Um, but that Huma is just one part of what they have. And you have ByteDance and TikTok and um, some of these digital platforms are just just massive. And, and lastly, Alipay and WeChat Pay will continue to expand across borders. Yeah, it's uh, funny. When I go to tourist destination now, it feels like the one that's had the most traction in the U.S. is Alipay for Chinese tourists. So, like, you, you can use Alipay to, to pay for your taxi in Las Vegas now, right? Like, and it makes perfect sense. Oh, yeah. I, I think that, you know, you definitely see Alibaba and, and other players really focusing on the China outbound market, right? Um, it is a very valuable demographic. You have... Um, in, uh, Alipay has 600 million active users in China. They have, you know, um, but they have a lot of focus on these outbound, vi- uh, outbound travelers. Last year, there was about 130 million outbound trips just out of China alone. And so 25% of that was actually to North America. And so wow. in order to service them who kind of use Alipay at home every day and they're spending like $4,000, $5,000 per trip abroad, how could you not you know, market to that consumer base. And so I think that, you know, that's definitely something that you'll see more and more of in terms of partnerships around the world. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, We talked a little bit about Alibaba. Uh, One of the things I'm curious about is, is China a winner-take-all model? Like, it feels like Alibaba is so huge and is uh, doing so well in in all their categories. And obviously, WeChat seems like they're huge. And yet there are still new mega platforms that seem like they emerge and it seems like they're getting traction like that. Yeah. And I I think that accounts to just the percentage of e-commerce as as a percentage of retail. Right. And so in the U.S., that's 10 percent. And in China, that's what, 20 percent. So it's still a lot of room to grow. That said, Alibaba still accounts for 60 to 70 percent of that market in, in terms of volume. And so I think that they are incredibly smart and very strategic. So instead of just looking at, you know, influencer side and partnering with Red, for example, or investing in, in these spaces, they actually have China, which is a, this amazing logistic network and very efficient, both domestically um, and, you know, aspirationally international as well. Um, I am so impressed by that platform. This, this consortium, just to give some background, they, Alibaba committed to this smart China logistics network to provide kind of 24-hour delivery of any product anywhere in China. And they actually spent about $43 billion to just even kickstart this project. And so they, um, they want to do this in terms of like shipping domestically in China and even 72 hours globally, right? And so as Taobao in China has transformed an entire generation's shopping behavior, I think that Tainiao from Alibaba can actually transform the traditional logistics ecosystem. And so they have this incredible brain behind data intelligence, domestic fulfillment, cross-border network, 
urban last mile and even tapping into the rural villages of China, which tons of opportunity. I think we, we hear a lot about, you know, Beijing and Shanghai all the time, but, you know, the real opportunity and just the, the bulk of the people are actually living in tier two, tier three, tier four cities. And so I think that like, it's, it's very smart that, you know, Alibaba is investing heavily in the logistics space, um, just as Amazon is doing so here in the U.S. and, and globally as well. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've been in e-commerce long enough to remember when people used to think e-commerce was going to be a capital light um, <laughs> category. Now you look at the leaders and the, like, the numbers that they're throwing out in terms of infrastructure investments are like hard to get your brain around. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, when you think about shipping, it's a necessar- necessity for any retailer and merchant, not just shipping to the consumer, but even like, how do you handle returns? Right. And and kind of how do you make it faster, but also more cost effective? And I think that that sector is still um, still early. A- Amazon is, is pushing the envelope. Right. And the bar is setting higher and higher for the customer every day. And so you actually see and we see this a lot of startups popping up in very specific niche solutions. Right. Or just one product solutions. Hey, shipping labels or warehousing, or dock stores, or handling returns. And I think that it's definitely very promising. And as a VC, we're, we're looking a lot into the space, because I think the last few years, we talked about DTC. It's a lot of investment in how do you, how do you improve the front-end experience. But now, um, you know, retailers and, and companies are really investing into retail automation, back-end, how do you improve the inefficiencies that you have. Um, and that's something that they're learning a lot from overseas as well, because China really leads in logistics. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, it, you know, you mentioned the reverse logistics. That feels like there's so much room still to improve that. And it's so important for the economic, the unit economics. Like in the U.S., the apparel industry, you know, is hugely moving to e-commerce. But returns are uh, like an enormous uh, piece and cost of that thing that seems like it's not sustainable. Oh, yeah. And, and a lot of times it could be even 40 to 70% are returns. Yeah. Much higher than what you would see offline. Yeah. So you could imagine there's some small vendor here that you and I haven't met yet that has figured out how to uh, help mitigate that returns problem for retailers. And that could be a great, uh, great next story um, for, for growth in the e-commerce space. Uh, so I know we're running out of time. Um, I'd love to get your perspective about where you think all this is going. Like, you know, if we jump in that time machine and go forward five or 10 years, how, how do you see the, the markets evolving? Well, one, I, I definitely look a lot for to global platforms, um, being able to shop very easily all across the world, um, when, no matter where you are in the U.S. and China and whatnot. I think second and is I look a lot into AI and intelligence. So how do you make... And more efficient, less waste. Um, and this trickles into other categories, not just in apparel or, or, or commerce, right? But um, you have, you know, from anybody from, you know, restaurants to coffee shops and, and whatnot. And lastly, um, sustainability and, and kind of CSR, right? And I think that, you know, I, I shop a lot online. I'm an avid shopper. I have a box coming almost every day, but it, it pains me to think about how many trees that like I'm actually cutting down and, and even though we recycle, how much of that really gets reused um, and repackaged. And, and so I'm really looking forward to somebody solving the sustainability problem for sure. 
Yeah, no, I uh, those are going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to following them as well. Um, and that's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Uh, as always, if uh, folks have a comment or question, feel free to jump on Facebook and we'll continue the dialogue there. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love that five-star review on iTunes. Uh, but, Robin, if listeners want to learn more about GGV or they've got the next great uh, innovation and they need your help funding it, like what's the best way to, to get in touch with you? Find me on LinkedIn. I leave my email there, and you can message me at any time. That's awesome. We will put that in the show notes, so no need to try to write it down while you're driving or anything. Uh, <laughs> with that, Robin, it's, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you, and thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 